Well, if you would, let's open up our Bibles to Romans for the, the last time. Probably not forever, but for a while. I re- recognize, as I said that, how that sounded. <clears throat> but the last time for a while. Romans chapter 16. As you turn there, I think it's, it's fitting to consider that we've taken the Lord's Supper and given thanks to God. And we've done so on a Thanksgiving weekend. And, um, and I'm sure Thanksgiving for, for many of you was enjoyable. Maybe for some of you it was a challenge. New, new experiences as, as even Joshua prayed. Loss of loved ones. Maybe just difficulties. Maybe, maybe the burden of family members who do not know Christ. Or maybe you, you had a great joyful time. Maybe even joyful in, in your morning with one another. But I hope that each of you were able to find time to give thanks. Time to, to joy the good things of the Lord with family or friends. Or I know many of you got together or some of you got together with church members and were able to share the goodness of a meal. Well, certainly we, we can't live like we did this weekend every day. It would take a toll on our waistline and other things. But celebrations in times like these are good. They are good to do in select times of the year because they remind us of God's mercy and His bounty upon the earth, His mercy towards us. And and even celebrations can anticipate the day in which we will celebrate a great feast around the throne with the Lamb who was slain. And so Thanksgiving, although it's celebrated by all, Religious and non-religious alike, it is a great reminder of God's mercy upon the just and the unjust. Nevertheless, for us who are Christians, those who know the one and only God overall, Jesus Christ, giving thanks should be more than merely rejoicing in the bounty that has been provided. But gratitude unto God for the eternal life wrought for us in Christ. See, one of the hallmarks of God's people is that they rightly give thanks. They rightly show honor to God and gratitude to Him. If, if you remember in our journey through Romans, which began a year and a half ago or more, remember Romans begins by reminding us of sinful humanity who do not honor God or give thanks to Him, but are futile in their thinking. And whose foolish hearts have been darkened, claiming to be wise, they, they're actually fools. Why? Because they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for that which has been created. They worship the gift, not the gift giver, you could put it that way. And so for Thanksgiving, when we give thanks, we don't just give thanks to the things that we have, but we ultimately give thanks to the one who gives the case of the unredeemed, they rejoice and show gratitude for that which they have acquired, for that which they think they have accomplished. But such gratitude is empty because it is not directed to the only true God and creator of all things. Sinful humanity celebrates their perceived independence and strength, thinking themselves to be wise. But for us, And I trust this is true of us this morning. For us who know the Creator, for us who know Christ, we do not claim wisdom and strength in ourselves, but give thanks to the one who has given us strength, who has made us wise in the gospel. 
And this is what our passage this morning emphasizes. Our passage actually is a is a is a, a, a doxology. You might see that in the bold print above uh, verse twenty five. It's a it's a word of praise and thanksgiving unto God. And here are the words of this praise, and I pray that it will be the words of your heart this morning. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. God's providence, we get a psalm of thanksgiving on thanksgiving. And so this morning, I want to consider, I want us to consider, where, where does our strength truly lie? What does strength truly look like? To say someone is strong, what does that mean? I want us to consider, are we strong in the world's eyes, but weak in God's? Or are we strong in God's eyes? Consider what the Scripture says. When we examine Scripture, we learn that it's the last who will be first. The poor who are rich, the blind who see, the humble who are exalted. The weak are made strong, and it is those who die who actually live. These paradoxes are found throughout Scripture and only make sense when we understand that true strength is, is not found in our independence, but in complete dependence upon Christ. And this is one reason that the book of Romans was written. And, and just to give you a heads up of what I plan to do, I plan to use this doxology as a springboard to kind of take us back through Romans in a, a survey sense. But one of the reasons that the book of Romans was written was, that, was so that the readers, so that believers would be made strong in the gospel. And as we consider this final passage in Romans, we're exhorted in three areas. To be strengthened in faith, to be strengthened by the gospel, and strengthened for God's glory. Let's consider the first one, strengthened in faith. When you think of strength, what do you usually think about? We typically think of uh, strength in terms of one's physical strength, maybe the world's strongest man competition. I have a friend of mine who's somehow, he used to be a scrawny guy, now he's training and competing in this. It's kind of crazy. That's what came to my mind. Maybe you think of strength in terms of material assets, the scope of influence, one's intellectual capacity or emotional stability. But what does it mean when the scripture says, now to him who is able to make you strong? What does that mean? Does it mean that God will be on your side to help you accomplish all your dreams? Does it mean that God will help you conquer all the giants in your life? That no hardship or trial will come upon you? And if they do, that you would be somehow unscathed by it? 
Well, this isn't the type of strength that God promises to give. Rather, the strength spoken of here is a strength in faith. A strength in faith. Faith is trust and hope in the promises of God in Christ. And and what Paul is wanting us to be strengthened in is that faith. Faith in the hope of the promises of God. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that finds strength in what is seen, don't we? We live in a world, and, and we are bombarded by temptations, and, and, and it even affects how we think. Strength is found in what can be seen, what can be touched here and now. And so the temptation is to live for the here and now and everything that we do. Yet as we consider the Scripture, we are to hope for that which is not seen. So what are the things hoped for and not seen? What are those things? Well, they are the promises of God in Christ. And I want us to consider, and we have this on the, on the screen, Romans 1, just the first six verses. And this is what Paul explains, or, or says his letter is about. Paul introduces himself. He says, I'm, I'm Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle. What does that mean? It means he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Now notice this, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Paul says, I am writing to you as one set apart for the gospel, and this gospel is what God has promised and has come to us in his son. Who is the son? The one who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Who is this one? Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. This isn't just for Paul and the apostles. It includes us who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm writing about the gospel entrusted to me, which was promised. And he's writing so that you and I, so that believers would be strengthened in faith in the promises of God. This is what he says in just a a couple of verses uh, down, if if you just look in verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, Paul writes, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What is that strengthening? That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul says, I'm writing Romans to strengthen you. I want to impart a spiritual gift. That spiritual gift is the gift of the gospel in Christ. Notice he's writing this to people who already believe the gospel. He says, I want to impart this. I want to press this further upon you so that we might be strengthened. Strengthened by one another's faith in the gospel. That's what he's saying. And as we considered our our study in Romans, and and particularly as we saw such faith illustrated in the life of Abraham, we we learned in Romans chapter 4 of what it looked like for faith that does not waver. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. 
Speaking of, of Abraham, you know the story. God promised him offspring. And Abraham waited decades to see this promise fulfilled. And Paul, reflecting on the faith of Abraham, writes, In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. There's the promise. So shall your offspring be. So he hoped against hope. What does that mean? He hoped in that which he could not see. He hoped in the word spoken, the promise spoken to him, that you will have offspring. Paul goes on, he says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. That's what can be seen. Which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. She wasn't much younger. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had what? Promised. True strength is strength in faith in what God has promised. Do you see that? Do you see in the life of Abraham, who is the exemplar of faith for us, that Abraham gloried in God, he he praised God, and that's the expression of his faith, because he was convinced that God would keep his promises. But it was nothing that he could see in his circumstances. He was a hundred years old. His wife had been barren for nearly a hundred years. And yet the word of God that had come to him, the promise of God that had come to him, is that you will, be, you will receive a son through your wife, Sarah. And he grew strong in his faith as he considered the promise of God. On the same way, we are to trust in God and his promises. And, and we, we trust in that which we have not seen, but that which we have heard. That's what we've done in the Lord's Supper. We trust Him who raised Jesus from the dead, waiting patiently for God's promises to be kept, promises that we cannot see, right? What has God promised us, brothers and sisters? Have you ever considered that? What has God truly promised you? For us, God hasn't promised us children like He did Abraham. But God has promised that Abraham's children will receive the inheritance promised to him. And through faith in Christ, you and I are children of Abraham. Waiting patiently for the kingdom that has been promised to him. A kingdom that's not yet revealed, but a kingdom nevertheless that will not be shaken either. Brothers and sisters, we lack faith because we lack understanding of God's promises for us. We, as we sang in, I think in that new song we sang, Forgiven, we would rather settle for the crumble, the crumbs left to us on this earth than the glories of God to be revealed. We lack faith in the promises of God. We're weak in faith because we don't know the promises of God. We're too busy hoping for things that will one day pass away instead of hoping in the glory of God to be revealed. It's evident in our prayers. It's evident for the things that we pray for. 
and sometimes the, the temporary of the temporary. And so our faith is often an uncertain hope that we'll land that job, get that family we long for, relive those glory days, get that nest egg, or regain our health. Now these things aren't bad. They aren't things that you shouldn't necessarily pray for. But if they're what you're hoping in, and if they're things that you think God has promised you, well then you're setting yourself up for a world of disappointment. Because this world is filled with trouble. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples before he left. Do not lose heart. Why? Because this world is full of trouble. But we seem to think, no, that doesn't apply to us. And so we are weak in faith. We are strong in what we can see. We're strong in what we can do. But we're weak in faith. We're weak because we do not depend. And yet it was Paul who had to learn, all the more I'll boast in my weaknesses, because when I am weak, then he is strong. But we want Jesus to be weak because we're strong. But we need to be reminded of the promise. What has he promised? He's promised us resurrection from the dead. He's promised us eternal life in his kingdom. And as one of your pastors, where I want to exhort us every day is to lay hold of that promise by faith. And not only that, that we would grow in that faith. Grow in those promises. That we would not live for that which we can see. That we would set our mind on things above where Christ is seated and where we are seated in the heavenly places. But the reason that is not appealing to many of us is because we don't know what that means. And we don't understand the glory that is to be revealed in us when Christ returns. So how are we to grow in such faith then? If we're weak in that faith, if we don't cherish those promises, how do we grow in that which we don't yet understand? Well, our passage is very instructive for us. You're still there in verse 20, 25. What does Paul say? This is our second point. We are strengthened by the gospel. We're strengthened in faith, but how does that happen? By the gospel. And this is what Paul says. Now to him, that's God who is able he is able, brothers and sisters. Do you believe that? Those of you who are weak and beaten down, do you believe he is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? Because this is the hope for us, the gospel and the preaching of Jesus this is again how Paul began the letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, how I want us to be people not ashamed. People would say, oh, I declare the gospel because in it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, including me. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. That's the beginning. How is it revealed? Faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. How 
do we truly live? Have you ever wondered that? How, how do you truly live? How do you live eternal life living? Ever thought about that? Like, well, I wake up, I, I breathe, I, I go about my day. Yes. But how do you live by faith? Because the scripture says the righteous will live, they won't die. They live, they find life by faith. This is how Christ put it. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's life-giving power works through the gospel in the lives of those who trust the gospel. That's what faith is. Faith is trust. It's reliance. It's dependence. I believe the gospel, which is the promise of God for me, and I live by that promise. I, re- I, I lean, I wholly lean on Jesus' name. I trust the gospel. In other words, even if you have a faith of a mustard seed, the good news is that seeds grow. Maybe you say, I am weak in faith. Well, how do you water that seed? You water it with the gospel. Because the gospel is the the means by which that seed was planted. And you keep watering, and you keep watering, and that seed will grow. Again, Romans 10, 17 tells us that the source of faith is that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I feel this temptation, brothers and sisters, that somehow I will grow in my relationship with God and Christ some other means than then digging myself in the word. Some other means I will grow. No, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how, how you began in faith and that's how you grow in faith. So just like the mightiest of hurricanes, you, you, we, we think of those hurricanes that are devastating but mighty in power. Where do hurricanes get their strength? By sucking up the warm currents from the waters on which they hover. Well, in the same way, we grow in faith as we draw from the warm currents of the gospel of Christ. Are you hovering? Are you sucking it up? Are you feeling the radiating heat of the power of God through His Word? Because that's the only way you'll grow. That's the only way you'll be strong in God's eyes. This gospel, Paul says, back in our text, verse 25, accords with with the mystery that was kept secret in previous ages, but has been revealed in Christ. What does that mean? This means that God's saving purposes, that is, His plan of redemption for us and the creation, for us and the whole world, are disclosed through the gospel of Christ. And so we learn in the gospel that God keeps His promises how? What is the gospel? It's the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, I've been united to Christ, so so what do I learn about that? Well, that means that's how he's going to keep his promises to you, through death and resurrection. That's where the trouble part, we we don't want the death part, but we want the resurrection. Well, that's only one way to raise. you got to die. And so we learn in the gospel that we too receive the promises as we die daily. And live by 
by faith in Christ. And ultimately, we will die. Unless he returns. So consider, I want you to consider, as we think about Romans, think about the gospel, how God has saved you. What does the gospel say to you and how God has saved you, how God is saving you, and how God will save you? And I would put forth to you that it's by death and resurrection. Everywhere we see it, it's death and resurrection. Let's look at the first one, Romans 3, 21 through 26. This will be on your screen. Paul writes, he says, but now, now, that, that now means now that Christ has come, now that the gospel has been revealed, the righteousness of God, namely his righteousness to save sinners, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, there's how that justification, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Well, how did that happen? How did that gift come to us? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There it is. That gift of justification was provided by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what did that do? Well, Paul goes on. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ or Jesus. I want us to consider another passage. Not only ha- This is in Romans 6. Turn there. Not only has Christ's death accomplished our forgiveness of sins... But his resurrection gives us new life to live free from the bondage of sin. Paul writes in verse 3 of chapter 6, Do you not know? That means you should know this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? His death. There it is. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see how the gospel explains how you live as justified believers? The gospel explains this is what happened to you. You died and you've been raised. He goes on, verses 12 and 14. He applies this. This is what it looks like in your life now. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Do you see that? Because we have been brought from death to life, because we have been united in faith through the gospel, Sin no longer has the same bondage upon us as it once did. I can fight the battle. Finally, let's look future. Romans 8. It's the gospel of Christ, death, and resurrection that gives us hope for our future salvation. 
There's a sense in which we've been raised now. My eyes have been opened. My heart has been softened. I now love Jesus, but I'm still waiting for not just the resurrection of my heart, but the resurrection of our bodies, right? And so Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that doesn't mean the good that you define. The good here is your resurrection from the dead. For those who are called according to his purpose, and he, he tells us, what's his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. The promise that God has made to you and me in the gospel is that we are united to Christ and he is conforming us. He is shaping us. He is molding us in the image of his son. And that will ultimately happen and completed at the resurrection. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Keep going. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren's brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The work that God has done in Christ in us, he will complete to the end. Therefore, it's in light of God's saving purposes for us that we now live lives shaped by the gospel. You've heard it said many times, we never graduate from the gospel. It's not something that you did in the past and then you leave behind and you got your fire insurance. No, your life is now conformed and shaped by the gospel. Because we've been saved, are being saved, and will be saved by the truth of the gospel, we now live in light of that truth. So what does that look like? It means that we receive our sufferings with joy. You've always maybe read those scriptures. When you encounter various trials, my brothers, consider it all joy. Maybe that perplexes you. How in the world could that be joy? It only makes sense when you understand the gospel. For Christ, even himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Because that is the means by which God is keeping his promises through death and resurrection. And so as we die daily, and some of us are, are feeling the stench of death more than others. And I'm not talking about our age. I'm just talking about what we're experiencing, the heartaches that we're, we're bearing. And some of you who are enduring the suffering right now and are, are finding uh, solace and comfort in the gospel knows what it means. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, therefore, since we have received the gospel and, and been forgiven of our sins, what, what, what does that mean for us now? He goes on, he says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are looking to that hope of God's glory to be revealed. But that's not also what we rejoice in. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing what? Knowing the promises of God. That's what he's talking about. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
in light of the gospel and the promises of God, as we grow, and suffering is actually like the workout gym of your faith. It's the means by which you pump those muscles of faith harder than you ever have before so that you grow. Because you know that those sufferings have a purpose and they are producing endurance in you. Knowing is trust that God is working in our suffering. And too many of us, and I put myself here, we would do anything to avoid it. We want to avoid suffering at all costs, and we are disappointed when it shows up. And that's because we don't understand that God's working in us through suffering. We want the glory without the cross. We're like Peter when Jesus says, I will be handed over to the chief priests and be crucified. He says, by no means. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. You've set your mind on things of men and not the things of God. We too quickly say, by no means. This couldn't be the Lord's will for my life. But yet everywhere in the scripture it says rejoice in your sufferings. We can only do that if we're gospel strong. But what does this suffering do? It produces endurance. And endurance produces character. That's the shape and the genuineness of our faith. And character produces more hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Suffering is one of the means by which God pries our cold hands off the temporary things of this world and reminds us that we are not independent. It reminds us that we are very much dependent. That doesn't mean that the world doesn't suffer. The world is under the domain of darkness. And then we know that this world is, is under the curse of sin. But we also know in Christ as the righteousness of God has been revealed through the gospel and we have faith in it. We understand that even the evil of this world is not outside of God's control. And for us as believers, it's not working to our doom, but to our glory. That's the good that all things are working out for. And so the gospel helps us shape how we think of persecution, even when we feel we've been mistreated. Romans 12, 14 through 20. How else can you bless those who persecute you? Or, or maybe you feel like you've been wronged. Anybody here think you've been wronged lately? You don't have to raise your hand. You think you deserve better than you've been treated. Maybe, maybe you do. But do you know how the gospel speaks to that? Or do you insist on your rights? And you make sure I'm going to set things right because I deserve well, then how does Romans 12, 14 through 20 fit into your worldview? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. This isn't saying, well, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. No, I know they did evil to me. Well, well don't respond with likewise evil. But give thought to, the, to what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are you an instigator or are you a peacemaker? Even when you're justified. The world tells you you are justified. You've been wronged. Maybe you gather people together and say, we've been wronged. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take matters into our own hands. Well, You're not living the gospel. 
You're forgetting it. You're living for what can be seen. You're living for the temporary of the utter temporary. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Do you believe that? There's a promise right there. Do you believe that when the glory of God is revealed, he will set all things right? And you know if you believe it by the way you'll respond when you're wronged. You'll know. What about politics? Romans 13 helps us see how the gospel shapes our view of governing officials. Knowing that our hope is not in the results of election day. Every time we hit that second Tuesday or that first Tuesday of November, Christians are either walking on cloud nine or they are despair. And whichever one you're in, you're wrong. Because you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. I'm not saying don't be involved. We don't work for righteousness as far as it depends on us. Was your hope really in the elections that happen? Because if you're living on that, you're living for the temporary. But Romans 13 tells us that God is, is in control of the governing authorities, that there is no authority except God, and He is the one who appoints leaders, even the ones you didn't vote for. And they are accomplishing his purpose, whether bringing judgment or bringing common good. You don't always know what he's doing. He didn't ask us. But what I do know is that God has told me that there is one authority. And he has placed authority structures over us. And then I exemplify my trust in the ultimate authority by how I respond to the human authorities in my life. That extends all the way through society. Finally, the gospel shapes our relationships with one another. Every relational conflict that you endure is an opportunity to learn the gospel. It really is. It's kind of back to what I was getting at earlier. When you're wrong, this is an opportunity to learn the gospel. Often we insist on our own rights, seeking to please ourselves, but the gospel reminds us, Romans 15, 3, of Christ, who did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And he quotes that in a sense of calling us to bear with the failings of one another. How does that make sense? Only if you understand the gospel. And so those conflicts that happen, the tensions that happen, maybe you experienced some of those this Thanksgiving. I don't know. There are opportunities for you to say, do I trust God? Do I trust the promises of God? Do I trust the gospel? Or do I trust what I can see? And I'll lay hold of what the world says is strength. This is how we grow in faith. We continually shape our lives around the gospel of Christ. But to what end? Is it just so that we get stomped all over? And it's for nothing? No, remember Romans, our hope will not put us to shame. It will not disappoint. And so we're strengthened, thirdly, for God's glory. We're strengthened for God's glory. You see it in verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Oak Park, our hope, our strength are found in the revealing of the glory of God. And I know that's kind of a nebulous term, a foggy term. What's the glory of God? Well, since it is his holy and his beauty, 
Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's that, what's that talking about? The glory of the creation when God, everything is in his right order and beauty and splendor. Oh, we want God's glory to be revealed because when it is on full display, as his kingdom is here on earth, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, all things are made right. So God's glory is our glory. He shares it with us, not his divine nature, but he shares the goodness. All the things that are his becomes ours in Christ, his son. And this not only means our glory, but the glory of creation. All things will flourish under his sustaining grace for all eternity. And those who are gospel strong long for God's glory. Like Moses, we'll beg God, show us your glory. Our prayers will be not temporary focus, but oh Lord, as I suffer through illness or not getting that job or things aren't working my way, teach me endurance. Teach me to hope in the glory to come. Because even if I got what I wanted, it's temporary anyway. But Lord... If it be your will, that would be great. But if not, Lord, I'm hoping in your glory that comes through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what our prayers are. That's what they are to be. So we are like Moses saying, show me your glory, Lord. We long to behold Christ. We want to see Him. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are declaring your death until you come. Lord, come quickly. Why? Because when we behold the glory of God, it will be because He has completed the work that He has started in us. Well, How do you get to that place? How do you get to the place that you long to behold the glory of God? Well, it shouldn't surprise you. It's our love for God's glory comes as we are strengthened in the gospel. We're constantly washing ourselves in the gospel over and over again and seeing how it applies in every facet of our life. It's not just going over facts. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus died and rose again. That's not what we're talking about. We're appropriating that in our life. Appropriating it as a husband to our wife, a wife to our husband, as we seek to shepherd our kids, our grandkids, or deal with the fact that we don't have those. It's trusting, Lord, you're going to raise this dead body from the grave. And as Jesus told Peter, he who has lost mother and father, friends, houses, they'll gain a hundredfold in my kingdom. Do you believe that? I'm going to land here in Romans 8. Kind of ties all these things together. Romans 8, 18. And then we'll go into 19, which is up on the screen. Paul says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time... How are you suffering? Think about it right now. How? What is, what is stress on your life? What is the heartbreaks in your life? What is the pain... In your life, consider that the suffering of this present moment 
is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is that? Well, it's even what the creation is longing for. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is us in our glory. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see that? Themes of glory. The glory to be revealed is our glory. It's God's glory. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, amen? We're groaning. We're hurting, longing, as we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, and now hope that is seen is not hope. Stop hoping for what is seen. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When the glory of God is revealed, all things are going to be made right, brothers and sisters. This means that God's glory will also be manifested in judgment. When Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of the hearts of men, and God will crush Satan under his feet. This day will be a day of vindication, not only for Christ, but also for all who trust in Christ and who have hoped in him. And this leads us to worship. And so Oak Park, as we have closed out our journey through the book of Romans, it's my prayer for all of us that we'd be strong in the gospel. That you would be feasting on the hope of the glory of God in Christ through faith. And that you and I would grow stronger Stronger, not in might, not in possessions. Although those things may happen. But knowing that is not where our hope is found. But we would fix our eyes upon that which cannot be seen. Upon a glorious kingdom that will not be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have closed this journey through this marvelous epistle, this spiritual gift that has been given to us, Lord, I pray that you strengthen us by it. Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take our hearts, oh, take and seal it. Seal it in your courts above. Keep us, Father. You are the one who's able to strengthen us according to your gospel to the preaching of Jesus Christ. You are the only wise God, and glory be to you forevermore through your Son, Jesus Christ. And your people say, Amen. Well, let's stand and fitting song, Pastor Chris, as well with our soul. Let's sing this with eyes of faith.